0: Josiah, Pastor Josiah comes up to preach. Can you look at a couple people around you and say, I'm thankful for you today? Just say, I'm thankful for you. Let's greet each other in the name of the Lord, and then we'll hear the word of God. Well, good morning, and uh, today is a very special day for the baptism and confirmation of our friends. Today is also special, not because it's only National Handbag Day and National Cake Decorating Day, but today is National Pastors Appreciation Day. And so I think as a church, we want to extend to Pastor DL and to his family. Thank you for being with us 20 years. Um, for showing God's faithfulness and love through us through your shepherding and leadership. Uh, so please thank him afterwards. For yeah. we are very blessed to have the best pastor, I think, in the world lead us. Well, today we continue in our uh, sermon series on what if, what it means to have a friend in Jesus. And Jesus shows that primarily through. Here in this story that we're gonna look into today through hospitality. And so the, the sermon title is Friendship Through Hospitality. There are three sayings surrounding the home that reflect two different kinds of cultures. Uh, a Spanish saying is Su casa, which means my house is your house. In Uzbekistan, where I grew up for most of my life, there's a saying that says Mechmon Otanda which means The guest is greater than the father. Compare that in these phrases to the American saying, a man's home is his castle. It's a reflection of two communal cultures that invite all and share all, and then a very hyper-individualistic culture that seeks to protect the home from outsiders. And that reflects in the recent American trends in sociology, where over the last three decades, we have seen a 40% decline in hospitality in the United States in showing, inviting over our neighbors or friends or strangers. And this was all pre COVID. This has contributed immensely to the devastating and pervasive sickness of loneliness. In fact, Mother Teresa has said that loneliness is a modern leprosy of the day. We feel the sting as Americans. With the numbers identifying as no one knows me has quadrupled since 1990 and 40% of Americans would now say that they do not have close friends. All of us and all around us, people have felt the pangs and been in the throes of loneliness. We all have felt what it means to be lonely. But sometimes we take it a step further where we attempt to appease our loneliness by creating an in-group and an out-group. By using our our status to exclude others and not show hospitality to make ourselves feel better. Our nation has practiced this form of inhospitality for, for a long time. Most recently shown through the segregation between blacks and whites where we use meals not to invite others in, but to make clear who is not to be invited and not to be allowed in. Mary Douglas says that meals have become boundary markers in the U.S., we eat with people that we most identify with, with those who fit our social and economic classes, and we engage in this form of tribalism over food. Maybe you have felt what it's like, this abject loneliness, not only within your home or at school or at work, but even in the church. Maybe other of us, when we feel this loneliness, we, we allow sin to distort what we're feeling and to make it an experience that's harder for other people. Maybe for us in our selfishness and sin, it causes us to show friendship only to those who are most like us, to those who look like us, to those who fit our standards of what it means to be human. The sin we see today in the book of Luke is a friendship with Jesus where we have received his hospitality that ends simply with us, and we don't extend it to the lost and to the lonely. We're going to see a man today who felt the pangs of loneliness to the deepest core, Zacchaeus, who is hated by society and desperately yearned for friendship. And then we see Jesus, who shows a picture of what it means to befriend Zacchaeus and ultimately humanity through hospitality. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Luke, chapter 19. We're going to read from verses 1 through 10. The book of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Uh, Luke was written by Luke, uh, and he is a doctor. And so he actually focuses a lot on what it means to be broken and unwhole and sick. And we'll see that a lot. And so pay attention closely to what Luke brings our attention to um, in in the picture of unwholeness. But this is God's word for us today. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. What's the point of this story? Is it that Jesus loves vertically challenged people? If that's it, then we're done for today. But it's much deeper than that. The main point is that Jesus demonstrated friendship to the lost and to the lonely through a generous hospitality that leads to genuine res- repentance and radical transformation. So before we go deeper into Luke 19, I just wanted to direct us to point back to Old Testament really quickly to remind us that God as a host and showing hospitality is not something new. God plays a role of the host throughout all of, all of Israel's history. And he, Jesus does so in his life but in Psalm 23, one of the most well known Psalms, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, which is a custom in hospitality. My cup overflows, signifying abundance. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's God's invitation, to dwell in his home in a permanent state of hospitality. And so if we look at the gospel through hospitality really quickly, we see that God has always been the host for mankind. When God created the world, he invited us to this big party. And Luke 15 kind of embodies that in the story of the prodigal son. But Jesus creates everything in this world and that's good and perfect. And he invites us as guests to partake and to live forever with him. But have you ever had a guest who's just really unruly and like goes into your bedrooms and closets when you ask them not to and crosses boundaries and makes a mess and maybe makes, leaves you in tears as a host. Um, that was us. Like we, we saw God's party and we were thinking like, you know what this party needs? It needs to be trashed. Like we, I can do a better job as a host. And so we, attempting to be the host of our own parties, we subverted the created order and we, to, we left God to become the host of our own parties. And as a result, We brought in another unwanted guest into our lives permanently, and that's sin and death. And as a result, we've always felt what it's like to never have enough. And we have this issue of doubting God as the good host who can always provide for us. But Jesus, God being the good host who loves us and does not give up on his guests, he pursued us by 2,000 years ago, sending himself not to show us what the party is about as a host, but to show us that he is the party. And that's what we see today. So in Luke 19, we find three thoughts that reveal Jesus' friendship to us through hospitality. And the first thought is this. Jesus' hospitality finds the lost. His hospitality is one that seeks out the lost and the lonely. Zacchaeus was a man who was lost. And he had qualities that Luke emphasized. And what Luke invites us to do is to simultaneously see that we are Zacchaeus, but he also invites and challenges us to be like Jesus, to invite those who are Zacchaeus' out there. So there are eight quick identifiers that we see from Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. And it shows here. So one, Zacchaeus was living in the city of Jericho. Jericho at the time was one of the most prosperous cities. It was named the fattest in the city in the land. So kind of like our Windermere, Winter Park area, um, Zacchaeus also was a Jew. We see that when Jesus affirms him in verse 9. Zacchaeus' name actually means pure and righteous. But what's ironic is that no one, not even the crowds, nor Zacchaeus, viewed him as righteous or pure. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and Pastor Dio explained the connotation that comes with that a couple weeks ago. But this is different from Matthew because Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. like He was the worst of the worst. Zacchaeus was also very rich, says that in verse 2. Um, and finally, we also see that Zacchaeus was short, and that he had defrauded a lot of people to climb that ladder. See, tax collectors were very well-hated in those times because they were Jews who were selling out their own people to work for an oppressive and murderous empire in Rome. The way they would do this is something like this. If if Rome taxed us, like 40% of our income, the tax collectors would come by and they would say, hmm, that is a weird way of saying 50%. So they would extract 50% and then pocket the 10%. And if you protested, they would just point behind them and say, well, the Romans are backing me. And so the most powerful military force in the world is saying, yeah, I don't care. And that's what it was like. This position of a tax collector demanded that you lose all morals, you change allegiance from your own people and to your God, to your allegiance to the Roman emperor. Zacchaeus wasn't just a bad guy. He was also an oppressor and a perpetuator of injustice. And as a chief tax collector, he did a lot of wrong and corruption to climb to the top. But what Luke points us to is that Zacchaeus actually lived in poverty. Despite his material riches, he was very poor and destitute, socially, physically in height, and then spiritually too. And so that leads us to see that Zacchaeus decided to throw his own party, just like we did. Instead of following God as a host, he decides to do his, write his own story and his own narrative, and because of that, that left him deeply alone. And in need of a friend, what Luke also does—that's really cool—is he invites us to compare Zacchaeus to two groups of people. One is the crowds that we see in verse seven when they grumble and they see that Jesus is hanging out with a sinner. You see, Jesus is someone who does that because he has had a reputation for doing so. In Luke chapter seven, he's crowned with this, this kind of reputation of being a drunkard and glutton. Not because he overeats or overdrinks but because he hangs out precisely with sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. That's whom he shared his meals with. But there's a previous chapter in chapter 18 where there's a story of a very similar man to Zacchaeus, a rich young ruler who is living near Jericho, who is also very wealthy. And he comes to Jesus asking what he must do to be saved. So they're both curious, they're both rich, they both live near Jericho. But the difference, as we look at the juxtaposition, is that the rich young ruler was well-liked in his society, and Zacchaeus was well-hated. And there's also a difference in the results of how they respond to Jesus. The crowd hated Zacchaeus, and they hated that Jews would spend time with him. They were upset. At first they thought, maybe Jesus is going to condemn him when he's in the tree. But instead, they see an invita- a self-invitation over to Zacchaeus' home. And The reason why they were so upset is because in this context, the Pharisees at the time had this very, very stringent set of rules. And one of these rules said that if all the Jews in the world— were able to fully obey the law, the Torah, for 24 hours in a day, then the Messiah would return. And so it fostered and cultivated this very, very toxic and legalistic culture of religiosity where you would constantly call out and shame others for breaking the law in the most minute ways. But one of the big ways that you could break the law was by table fellowship with people who are not Jewish. So these were Gentiles who were non-Jews and also sinners, those who were deemed like the worst of the worst of society. That's why Jesus going to the house of a ta- chief tax collector was scandalous. I remember my senior year of high school when I returned to the United States from the mission field. Um, going from a high school of 50 to 3,000 was a lot. and I didn't know anyone there. And I felt loneliness most profoundly at lunchtime where I didn't have anyone to sit with for a couple months. And that's probably the worst feelings in the world, where you're just like, you're sitting alone, everyone's watching you, maybe some people are laughing at you or deriding you. And my school was actually pretty famous for, or infamous, for being the worst bullying school in Fairfax County at that time. Um, we already had two suicides by, before January 1st, and one of my acquaintances, um, Christina, was an albino. And so she had like um, fully white skin, fully white hair, and a lot of people made fun of her for that. And so on January 1st, she took her dad's gun and ended her life. And I remember when I came back to school, when school started again, and you could hear the tears and the sobs in the hallways of regret, where people would say, like, I wish I didn't say that to Christina. I wish I had kept, like, withheld that. But two or three weeks later, like, we were back to normal in our own flow. And as I was kind of observing, I I had to realize, like, there's something that we're called to do more than just abstain from bullying people. Like, if that's what we're called to do as Christians, that's pretty low. And I realized that God's love was compelling me to have a proactive stance in pursuing others. And so, um, I felt God's calling for me was to give up my most precious and secure times at school, which was lunchtime, to sit with other students who were sitting alone. And it, it was pretty awkward and uncomfortable of just, like, it took a lot of courage to just go and sit with someone new A lot of times, I'm just like an awkward person, so it would result in just ensuing awkwardness. But I remember that there was a a senior in in my psychology class named Daniel. And Daniel was so quiet that even when the teacher called on him, he wouldn't answer. But he was in both of my lunches, A and B lunches, and my dad pointed out that, yeah, it's probably not a coincidence that he's in your class and in your lunches. Maybe he's someone that God wants you to reach out to. And so I started to sit with him. I remember the first lunch we had together, he didn't say a word. And so it, it was like a game of like, how many questions can Josiah come up with in 30 minutes? And it was, it was tough. But I remember as, as the days went by, uh, we started to, I started to just share about my life and my life story. If he's not going to talk, I would talk. Um, and I share about God and church. And um, as, as time went on, like he started to open up more and more. And he shared and opened up his heart to the profound, deep hurt that he felt when others would bully him or, or make him feel worthless. He never came out to church. He never came to Christ. Um, And I remember like the last day of of our lunch together, I I just wondered if if any of it came to any good of sacrificing those lunches with my friends. And I just said to him like as we were leaving, I was like, Daniel, you know, um, best of luck next year. Thanks for letting me sit with you. I know it was like really creepy and weird that I just came up to you, but um, thanks for letting me be your friend. And I'll never forget that he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, you don't know how much this has meant to me, all those months that you sat with me. I don't claim that, like, any life was saved on that day or those months. But what I do know is that what I could offer him in my presence was something that he appreciated. And last year on his birthday, when I texted him, he, he texted back and he said, I still don't forget those lunches that you sat with me 10 years ago. That's the invitation that Jesus has for us. And when we look at the story of Zacchaeus, and also compare it to our own real-life examples, before we, we accuse and, and kind of look down upon the crowds that were judging Zacchaeus, we have to realize that we are the crowds. We have a moral ladder where we compare and we, we place people into categories on different rungs. Who is the bottom of the moral ladder in society for you today? How would we feel if Jesus came into 21st century Orlando and instead of meeting with preachers and pastors and shepherds, He met with the pedophile, and the sex offender, and the murderer. That's the type of people that Jesus was being with. Or maybe it's the others that we vilify across the political aisle, the transgender or the gay couple. Or conversely, it's the ultra-conservative Trump follower and the anti-vaxxer. Maybe it's the abusive boss that you have at work, or the really unruly employee, or it's a school bully, or it's just the in-laws that you can't stand. But why do we get so upset at grace shown to the undeserving when we ourselves are not deserving of grace? Jesus' engagement with Zacchaeus shows that there is no exception to God's acceptance. Zacchaeus literally financed the oppression and the murder of his own people. If we think that God hates us or loves us based on what we do in life, then we have missed out on what God's grace and hospitality is. We become just like the crowds. Are there Zacchaeuses or Daniels in your life who are waiting for people to stop throwing stones and to offer a hand of grace or their presence? Sometimes I think God allows us to feel what it's like to be lonely, not so that we can just receive comfort and care, but because we can use that to redeem it for other people. God lets us become lonely so that we can help and be, give our presence to those who are experiencing loneliness. So if you feel lonely at church or at work or at school, maybe you're sitting alone at sometimes at lunches, my invitation for you is to, let's turn that around. Let's use that to to reach out to others in our communities who experience loneliness to the biggest degree. Because we find that when Jesus offers Zacchaeus the opportunity to host him, Jesus is restoring the dignity of having someone under Zacchaeus' roof. Maybe it's not us waiting for someone to invite us to a meal, but being proactive in that way, just as Jesus did. The second thought we see is that Jesus' hospitality encounters the person. It engages the person. And we see this from verses 4 through 6. What's interesting, if you, if you, kind of are, um, if you know your Bible, Jesus means Joshua in Hebrew. It's Yeshua. And, what's in, and that name means God saves. But if you remember from Sunday school, the the story of Jericho. When Israel comes out of slavery and it comes into the promised land, they encounter this fortified bastion of the city of Jericho. And instead of fighting it and laying siege to it, God has a very unconventional method of warfare. He says, walk around it seven times and sing, and then the walls will come crumbling down. There's an interesting parallel here where the new Joshua comes to Jericho again. But he's not walking around the city bringing the physical walls down but there are still walls to be brought down. And that's the walls of, of Zacchaeus's heart. You see, Zacchaeus represents Jericho in a way where Jesus comes down not to bring physical walls down of oppressive empires, but he comes to bring down the walls of sin in our lives. And that's a really profound thing that Luke is pointing us to. Um, for Zacchaeus, when Pastor D.L. asked us this morning, what's the most unreasonable thing you've done? or the most craziest thing you've done recently for Jesus. For Zacchaeus, he could probably say it was climbing a tree to get a bare glimpse of Jesus. Because Zacchaeus, no, no, man, no grown man in that time would climb a tree. That's for children. And Zacchaeus, already being like the butt of all the jokes and all the ridicule, being small like a child, just humbly accepts that. And he just, he climbs a tree to get a better glimpse of Jesus. Because for him, that's far more important than his reputation. So we see Zacchaeus is acting admirably here. He humbled himself like a child. And it says that when Jesus encounters him, when Jesus encounters a person, that Zacchaeus comes down joyfully. And what's interesting is that he becomes joyful and happy for four reasons. So first, we see Jesus initiated the conversation. Um, Jesus does that a lot in his friendships with other people. He initiates the conversation. Second, we see Jesus looked up, and this is something that's foreign to Zacchaeus because no one looks up to him in life, both literally and figuratively. He's small in stature, but also his, um, his position is the lowest in, of society. But Jesus is doing two things here. He's doing both. He's looking up physically at Zacchaeus who's in a tree above him, but he's also taking time to admire what Zacchaeus has done, of humbling himself. Where It says in the book of James that God humbles um, those who, who are low. The third thing we see is that Jesus knew his name. He doesn't refer to Zacchaeus as tax collector. He refers to him as his name, affirming his identity as pure and righteous. And lastly, Jesus says, I must stay at your house. Jesus is unashamed to seek Zacchaeus' friendship, despite Zacchaeus' moral failures. I want us to know what Jesus does not do. He does not simply look up at Zacchaeus and say, you fool give back all that you had you cheated to other people and just go home and I do not want to see you. But he also doesn't say, Zacchaeus, you need to give back what you've taken from other people and then I'll come into your house. Instead, Jesus reverses that order. It makes us wonder, like, why did Jesus invite himself over? You have those friends who do that too often. Maybe Jesus was like that because it's pretty uncommon that time too. But what Jesus is doing is not rude. It's generous, and it's it's actually hospitable. And so what Jesus does is he inverts hospitality. We tend to think that Zacchaeus is the host, and Jesus is the the self-invited guest. But in actuality, Jesus entered, though he entered as a guest, he played the role of the host. Because he allowed for Zacchaeus to encounter the feast of God's abundant grace and love. So even if Zacchaeus feeds him, Jesus extends and cares for the needs of Zacchaeus, the biggest needs of his heart, which is by giving him the opportunity to show hospitality, thereby even restoring Zacchaeus' honor in front of other people. And that brings us to the important topic of table fellowship. Hospitality, or table fellowship, was so important in this culture. Joachim Jeremiah says that he describes table fellowship as an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. In short, Sharing a table means sharing life. And that's at the core of what hospitality is. It's not about the food. It's about sharing life together. Jesus' meals with his tax collector friends and prostitutes and sinners were the most meaningful expressions of God's redeeming love for mankind because for Jesus, meals were not boundary markers, but they were a way of letting people in. There are at least 50 references in the book of Luke of Jesus eating and drinking, and at least 94 in the book of Matthew. And there's a saying that says Jesus was always either coming from a meal, at a meal, or going to a meal. Jesus loved food and drinking. That's a, that's a God to follow. Um, there's, there are some qu- definitions of what hospitality is. And so Henry Nouwen says hospitality is the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. And John Mark Comer takes that a step further where he says, expressing the love of God, the Father, to all through, intangible, through tangible acts of love, namely through giving food, shelter, and relationship. This is something that Jesus has, has continued and he wants us to continue to. And it's instructed for us in, in the gospel, in, in the New Testament. So in Romans 12, 13, it says, Paul commands us, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13:1 and 2, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. My parents modeled this well for me. And my dad, when we lived on the mission field in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan, my parents started a church in Uzbekistan, also called Harvest. And we encountered a man named Ali Sher. Ali Sher was a quadriplegic. He was unable to move anything the neck and below. He was one who had a very, very tragic life story. When he was newlywed, he would often beat his wife. And enraged, his father-in-law took a lead pipe and hit him in the head. And as a result, he suffered trauma and was sent to the hospital for in a coma for weeks, losing a lot of blood. And that started the process of his illness. When he was released from the hospital, Ali Sher took the same pipe and killed his father-in-law with it. He was sent to prison for a long time and as he was in prison, that started, he started to lose function in his arms and his legs. After he was released from prison for many years, Ali Sher was taken care of his, by his family, and, and my dad met the family for the first time. And so he decided to come over once a week to Ali Sher's home. My dad said it was really easy because Ali Sher was a captive audience. Um, and so he would share the gospel over a meal and share the Jesus film with him, um, but share the gospel with him and the teachings of Jesus. And Ali Sher was intrigued. Who is this Jesus? Who is a friend of people who had a horrible past? And the way that God's love broke through to Ali Share was not just simply sharing that meal together, but showing hospitality to extreme measures. And so every four hours, my dad would have to carry Ali Share in his arms to the outhouse, and there Ali, he would help Ali Share in a very humbling experience for both of them to help him to do his duty, even to wipe him afterwards and take him back to talk more. But one time as my dad went, he noticed that the outhouse was extremely dirty. And I think in that culture in Uzbekistan, we don't wash our toilets that much, especially the outhouses. And so you can imagine how uh, it's outdoors, um, it's just the stench and the mist droppings um, with Ali Sher, not being able to control everything. And so my dad took a bucket and water and he scrubbed out the outhouse for a couple hours. And when he came back, Ali Sher was so moved he said, you know, there's a lot of Muslim imams who have come by, but they've never entered into the gate because of the smell. But you're the first religious leader who's not only come into my house, but washed our toilet. And I want to know the kind of God who compels you to love in this way. So Ali Shah came to Christ, as well as his whole family, before he passed away a year later. But that's a beautiful, I think, story. If, if God could reach a murderer through hospitality, Imagine what he could do through our obedience to him. Leonard Sweet says that an untabled faith, a a faith that doesn't share a faith over a meal, is an unstable faith. A neglect of the table in our churches is echoed in our families and communities. There's another example of where a a professor from Syracuse um, in liberal studies, Rosario Butterfield, was someone who was in a lesbian relationship and was deeply hateful of the evangelical Christianity that she has seen. And so in an attempt to deride it, she wrote a column and was promptly invited by a pastor and his wife for a meal. And seeking to gain more knowledge about how to attack Christianity, she went over, and it soon became going over every week, which turned into Bible studies. And it was through the hospitality of the pastor and his wife that she came to Christ and came to know the Lord. And so writing this book about her conversion, she writes, the, the gospel comes with a house key. And in it, she says, Radically Ordinary Christianity. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or to a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. And meals catalyze this. It catalyzes this radically ordinary hospitality where something so mundane or routine and ordinary as a table becomes sacred, not by how we use it. If we can give ourselves fully to listen and to love and to connect and to reconcile over a meal, it turns that ordinariness into something that's beautiful, into something where genuine transformation can occur. But we all know that hospitality is very, very difficult. It's so inconvenient, and it comes at a cost. And you might be sitting here wondering, like, what am I supposed to do? I'm just a middle schooler, or I'm just a UCF student who's, like, barely struggling to eat tortillas. Or I'm a shepherd who has to take care of, like, three hungry children and a house church every week. How can I show hospitality in ways that God's calling me to? The main point is it's not about the food or the hosting. That's not what Jesus' intention is. And sometimes, that's, that's a bonus, that's, that's great. If you can cook, great, that's awesome. But if, sometimes we, we miss the forest for the trees because hospitality in Jesus' definition is not about who cooks or who pays for the meal when you go out. It's about how you give yourself to the other person. And it's usually over the expression of a shared meal. Sometimes we miss the forest for the trees and it comes to like a wedding. When we care too much about the wedding than for the planning and the preparation of a marriage itself. So true hospitality focuses on the other, where the line between the host and the guest is blurred so much. It's not about reciprocating. It's not about someone who could pay you back, as Jesus says. It's about whom we can give to sacrificially. And the giving itself of ourselves, of our comforts, our food, our money, our gifts, is in of itself a gift. And I'm so encouraged, I think, by our church's form of hospitality. I think we excel in this area, especially when it comes to the form of house church, which is where our church is built upon. We share meals every week and then we share life together too. But I want to challenge us too. How can we move beyond that sometimes? Because I know that even through that, sometimes there are people slip through the cracks within our church, but also extending that to people outside of our church, to other Zacchaeuses and Daniels who know what it feels like to be lost. If we take a role of the last people, of the people we've eaten with for the last two or three months, do we see a recurring pattern? Is it simply the people who are most like us, who fit our social standards, the people that look a lot like us? As single people, I, I want to challenge us. We can invite over families to cook for them, um, learn what it's like to enter into their lives. And as families, we can reciprocate and invite over single people who, are coming from, who live from out of town and don't have a family here. We can be both traveler and guest. We can look for the orphan, for the widow, for the, the lonely, the immigrant, and the refugee. When was the last time that we shared a meal with someone who didn't have a home, who was homeless? How can we preach a gospel of inclusion, but our meal receipts reflect a gospel of exclusion? And that's so hard. As I was like, preparing for this, like so much conviction of my personal lifestyle and the lack of generosity that's there. And so I think what Luke shows us, like, yeah, none of us are, are really hospitable as, as much as we think. And there's a challenge for us to do so. The third thought that we see is that Jesus' hospitality transforms the life. and Jesus' hospitality transforms the life. And we see this in the last four verses from Luke 19, 7-10. Once Jesus encountered Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus met the person of Jesus, that's when transformation happened. You see, after the meal, it says in verse 8 that he stood up, and there's like emphatic like, urgency that he has, and he says, Lord, I'm going to give back to those that I've stolen from. I'll pay back fourfold four if I've cheated them. And Jesus knew Zacchaeus' heart well. Behind those gold chains, he could see the heart of Zacchaeus. That Zacchaeus needed to know what it felt like to be a guest in order to be a good host to other people. Jesus says that he, salvation has come. Salvation is personified in this way in which Zacchaeus' life was transformed not because of a change in his behavior, but before that, because he met the one who can transform lives. Salvation came through a person, and that's how Jesus showed hospitality to Zacchaeus. Other religions share and and purport that in order to gain favor with God, we have to do good things to change before we come to God. But what Christianity says is that we come to God so that we can be changed. It's an inversion of what our world says. Notice that no one, not even Jesus, tells him to give up his stuff and give it to the poor. Zacchaeus does it of his own volition. Why? Well, Richard Plass says that because God made us for communion, we cannot change unless we are in the presence of others. Paul affirms this in Romans 2.4 that the riches of God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. And what's interesting is that Zacchaeus stands up and he says, Lord, and what he's doing is he's no longer claiming allegiance to Rome, but he's claiming allegiance to the God of the universe, the greatest host of all, one who can supply his needs more than an empire can. Zacchaeus, he not only says it, but he backs it up with action. Zacchaeus shows that when grace is received, grace is given. By law at that time, when you did something wrong, you cheated someone, you had to pay them back double. But what Zacchaeus does, interestingly, is he, pays, he promises to pay back fourfold. It's not about fairness anymore with Zacchaeus. It's about generosity. And that's the reflection of a changed life, a changed heart, where genuine change and genuine repentance is backed by action. Zacchaeus learned that it's better to be poor with Jesus than to be rich without him. It's costly to give up his sinful lifestyle and his accrual of wealth. But it's far costlier, he realized, to live without Jesus. And what's interesting is that when when Zacchaeus encountered Jesus in the person of him and he tasted love for the first time, that prompted him to love. He could not help but love in return. Walter Rosenbach says here, comparing this to chapter 18 with the returning ruler, a camel passed through the eye of the needle And Jesus stood and cheered. In the book Les Mis by Victor Hugo, uh, Jean Valjean is released from prison after stealing a loaf of bread. And he finds unexpected shelter in the home of a very kind bishop. But the temptations of old prove to be too strong and so he steals all the bishop's silverware and candlesticks. Valjean runs off with it and he's caught red-handed by the police and brought by the collar back to the door of the bishop. At this moment, we experience a moment of extraordinary grace where the bishop informs Jean Valjean's accusers that he actually gave the silver to the ex-convict as a gift. And he asks the police to kindly remove their handcuffs and the grip from the from the victim and they allow Valjean to go immediately. Jean Valjean is shocked. He's mesmerized by the guest gesture of the bishop and he gazes upon the, the bishop with an indescribable expression on his knees the bishop takes the candlesticks and he places them in his hands. And he says, my friend, you forgot these when you left. And as the police leave, he, he has a private conversation with Jean Valjean. And he says, now before you go away, remember that when you come again, you don't need to come through the garden. The front door is always open. Do not forget ever that you promised me to use the silver not for evil but for good. You no longer belong to evil but to good. This merciful act made such an impression on the troubled convict that it left him indelibly changed forever. And from that point on in that story, Jean Valjean becomes someone who is a benefactor to society. He saves people who are oppressed, physically and socially. He comforts those and cares for the orphan. It's an act of kindness and gesture that leads to a radical transformation of the heart in both Zacchaeus' life and Jean Valjean's life. And what that reflects is that there is no mess in our lives that God is not willing to use for his glory. There's no part of our story in which God won't use to redeem us and ourselves. Sometimes, God allows us to experience how bitter our sin is, to see how sweet and amazing Jesus' grace is. Jean Valjean and Zacchaeus didn't change until they encountered grace. They didn't change when they were commanded to. Sometimes I think we're a little too hard on ourselves, where we expect our behavior and our lifestyle to be modified for better, skipping the most important step of meeting Jesus. Because we could try our whole life to change, but if we haven't actually encountered grace, we're going to keep doing bad things, and that's going to outweigh our good. But we also, why do we, when we encounter other people ourselves, do we have this imposition where we demand for others to change before they can belong in love? That's something that Christ reverses, and he gives us, he gives the world the gift of the church. The church is supposed to show the world what it means to show us hospitality and invert it, that we are to love the lost and the lonely. So I want to ask you, do we welcome people into our community of faith unedited to stay and not to bounce right after, to fellowship with meals? Can we meet people over meals in their pain and in their loneliness to love them? Can we, put, can we understand that God puts families under our roof, in our house, across our table, and through our weakness to show love? What if hospitality became the front line of our church's form of evangelism? Not the only way, but a place to start. And I think what Richard Plass says also further is that sadly, when people come to the church for community, rather than a transformation of the soul, sometimes they experience a deformation of the soul. They enter a community hoping to find a home of unconditional love, but what they find is a self-righteous, self-protective, and self-promoting reality. Not a Spanish Uzbek form of the house, but an American castle. If this has been our experience, then the church has to apologize and repent. And that's something that I want to invite us to look into. Because we are both simultaneously hurt by community, but also the perpetuators of hurt in others' lives. And that's something that the Holy Spirit needs to continue to convict our hearts to repent of. That we are people who are formed and we lead to the deformation of of other souls and other people's lives. So how is the Holy Spirit inviting us to repent and change? What is he placing in your heart today? Is there a spirit of exclusivity, of keeping the other out, of wanting to be the in-group in our community, in in our family, in our church, in our schools, our jobs, that Jesus is asking us to sacrifice and lay down our lives to be more like him, to demonstrate a Jesus-like hospitality to Zacchaeus. You see, Jesus doesn't call us the tax collector or sinner. He calls us by our name. He looks upward into the trees where we're hiding and extends for all. Even though Zacchaeus went to find Jesus, he found out that Jesus was actually looking for him. When we encounter God, we find that we have not found God, but he has found us. In one of Jesus' last meals, Jesus demonstrated hospitality to its highest form. As he broke the bread and gave the wine in a symbolic gesture, he said, this is my body and my blood. Eat of it and drink of it, and in doing so, you gain fellowship with me. And in sharing that bread and that wine with his disciples, Jesus opened the world for us to to have fellowship with the Father to be reunited with the host one more time. And the greatest demonstration of hospitality ever seen by mankind, when Zacchaeus climbed a tree to get a better glimpse of Jesus, Jesus climbed the tree for us, crucified on the cross, so that we can gain a better glimpse of God. That's what it means to be a true host, and that's what Jesus invites us to do today. We're guests in God's kingdom, but let's be good hosts to a world that's been, that suffers from brokenness and loneliness and hatred. It costs Jesus his life. But it's at this tree that we're invited to climb up and climb down to find hospitality over a meal. I want to invite us to pray in closing. If we can close our eyes and bow our heads. Maybe you're like Zacchaeus. Maybe we've been hurt by communities, by the church Maybe we know what it's like to not have anyone who can listen to us over a meal or share their presence with us. How is God trying to comfort you today through the story of Zacchaeus? How is He hoping to speak to your heart in an effort to share and to invite you to the greatest banquet that the world has ever seen? Another prayer point I want to invite you to pray over is how is Jesus calling you to be more like Him, to be a friend as a host, to show hospitality? to those that society deems is, is the lost and irreversible in their ways? Are there people outside of your friend group, outside of your, your community that you normally associate with, that Jesus is inviting you? Maybe there's someone this week, a name that he's putting on your heart, that you can invite over, that you can share a meal with, someone who is also lonely and hurting, that needs Jesus. So I want to invite us to pray for, for a minute, and then I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as a host, you you invited us into a life that we could feast on the abundance of your goodness, of your creation, of the food that you give us to eat. But Jesus, we thank you that as the true host, you you saw that we were unsatisfied with what you gave us, your presence. And so you came down as a host looking for guests who were scrambling away and, and you invited us back to the banqueting table of love. And you gave yourself as the greatest sustenance that this world has ever encountered your love and your grace that's inviting to all who would enter in the holy spirit we thank you that you're a god who compels us and pushes us and challenges us to extend that same hospitality and continue it in the spirit of your love to people within our church and our communities and our families but also the people outside of it so god would you prompt our hearts to move into action Can we repent of the ways where we have excluded others and used meals to make ourselves feel more of a place of belonging, but move to a place, God, where you would invite us to invite others into your presence? Father, help us to change. And in doing so, God, would you begin your redeeming work in the lives of others. Help us to use our meals and our homes and our wealth and our money and our, um, our cooking for your glory. Thank you for giving your life for ours. Help us to do the same to others.